to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they are going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some of these topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand, as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Welcome back to our fireside indeed. We hope that you had a refreshing week and you are ready to dive back into our discussion on private prisons. If you missed last week's episode, we definitely recommend that you go back and listen to that. It's a pretty short session about the history of private prisons and how the practice of profiting from inmate labor in the United States developed out of slave labor. Also, I'm very proud of some of the editing in that episode, and I would appreciate it if everybody gave it a listen. Um, (laughs) Some of the key points to take from that episode. Slavery is still permitted within the United States via the 13th Amendment. And that is, that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. That's literally what the 13th Amendment says. It specifically outlawed slavery, except when used as a punishment for crime, which set the stage for the massive plantation penitentiaries that preceded for-profit prisons. And though we didn't hit on it specifically a lot, this intersected with the black codes and the explicitly racist laws driving significant numbers of black men into the system. Not to put too fine a point on it, but this is part of the reason why this systemic racism continues to be a problem in our criminal justice system today. Systemically racist practices developed out of explicitly racist laws. And even when specific steps were taken to remedy explicitly racist laws and practices, the impact of those laws meant that generations of descendants would be behind the curve in the development of things like generational wealth, leading to compounding losses in opportunity and education and employment. We talk about this far more in depth in our first several episodes, if you do want to know more about that. But for our purposes, we bring it up because this combination of laws meant that prisoners, mainly black men, and largely in the South, were being used to pick cotton or mine ore or perform other backbreaking labor as a punishment for their crimes. We'll remind you guys, too, that during the periods we're talking about, it really didn't take much more than even being accused of committing a crime for black men to end up in prison, regardless of actual guilt. As late as the 1970s, men sang field songs while picking cotton. And they were beaten and tortured for not picking fast enough and served in the plantation homes of the white owners of the companies that leased them to work. I'm specifically thinking of Terrell Don Hutto in that example, uh, but he was far from the only one. He just happened to go on and form a company that went on to make billions from the private prison industry. For-profit prisons continue to be a multi-billion dollar industry today, despite massive losses in 2020 and President Biden signing an executive order ending federal contracts. So this week, we're going to address the issues surrounding for-profit prisons today. Well, some of them anyway. There's a lot, and it's going to take us a couple of episodes. But today, we're going to talk about who's in these prisons and then what factors proponents of this prison system cite as good reasons why we should allow for-profit prison companies. Buckle up, because, well, this is going to be a pretty uh, interesting conversation. Right. Uh, I think 
uh, in reflecting on some of the things, uh, some of the ways we've addressed topics in the past is we are trying, we are honestly trying to present as good of an argument as we can based on what we have found uh, in support of, of this in this episode. So just keep that in mind as we move forward. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff is just, the arguments are very classic and all, all too believable. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I did not find surprising enough is what groups actually comprise the for-profit prison population. Yeah. Um, especially if you listened to the, the, the conversations we've had on, um, the criminal justice system and how systemic racism actually works and what it means. A lot of this information probably won't surprise you, but just to cover it, let's hit it. Private prisons in the United States incarcerated roughly 116,000 people in 2019. And that represented 8% of the total state and federal prison population. About 27,000 of those prisoners were in federal prisons and 89,000 were in state prisons. Now, since 2000, the number of people housed in private prisons has increased 32% compared to an overall rise in the prison population of 3%. So who are those prisoners? What are they in for? There are a couple of categories of prisoners that find themselves in private prisons. First, you've got those that make up state private prison populations. These are your run-of-the-mill prison inmates, right? They're, they're incarcerated for a variety of the usual reasons and would otherwise be sentenced to prison time in a run-of-the-mill state prison. Um, but if they fall under the jurisdiction of one of the 31 states that utilize private contractors to run a portion of their prison system, they could end up in a for-profit prison, especially if they're serving short sentences. So these people aren't our mass murderers. Right. Right. Our drug, like our, our huge drug kingpins, or probably, I don't even think there are big white collar offenders with millions of dollars in fraud and billions of dollars in fraud. That's generally not who's in the private prison system. Yeah. Uh, there is an interesting asterisk, though, to the idea that these are your average prison populations. The populations of for profit prisons tend to be disproportionately young, male, and non white. And this is even after you account for the significant racial disparities that are already present in the prison system. So what you're saying is that we've talked about the idea of controlling for variables in the past, right? So what you're saying is that even, even accounting for the fact that there is a discrepancy in the population of these prisons, private prisons are even more disproportionate than that. Right. There, there's a higher even higher representation of imbalance. Now, there are no publicly disclosed determining factors for this disparity, but some researchers believe that the primary determining factor is the potential cost of a prisoner. Remember, the goal of these facilities is to make as much money as possible while managing the incarceration of people in their custody. And again, that's not that's not speculation. That's not opinion. They have public shareholders. Right. They are a publicly traded, they're publicly traded companies. Investors need to see profit in, in their, you know, yearly summaries. <laughs> Otherwise they pull out. So yes, profit is, is the goal of these things. They are a business. Um, so it would stand to reason that the best inmates for these prisons are those who will cost the least to care for young and generally healthy. One researcher, uh, Christopher Petrella, noted in 2014 that those inmates who tend to come into the system young and healthy tend to be people of color. Petrella and other sources suggest that we have the war on drugs to thank for that particular boom. And then as inmate age increases, so does the likelihood that the inmate is white. Then there's the second group the largest group. According to the Bureau of Prisons website, the majority of Bureau of Prison inmates, Bureau of Prisons is, is initialized as BOP, so if you hear us saying that, um, that's what it is. The majority of BOP inmates in private prisons are sentenced criminal aliens 
who may be deported upon completion of their sentence. See, crossing the U.S.-Mexico border without authorization officially became a crime in 1929. Without getting into too much detail here, there was some consternation between nativists who were, um, are, still, Americans who favor policy that protects the interests of native-born Americans, not Native Americans, but people who were, as Bruce Springsteen said, born in the USA. Um, (laughs) And they wanted to impose a cap on immigration from Mexico, mostly because they didn't like Mexicans. And then, so there was consternation between them and the supporters of the U.S. agricultural industry, which heavily relied on Mexican workers. So in comes a noted white supremacist and nativist senator named Coleman Livingston Blees. And he proposed a compromise. That they would pass a law that criminalized immigrants who did not cross the border using one of the few and far between official entry points, where they would be required to pay a fee and submit to testing. These fees were, of course, prohibitively high, and those seeking to cross the border were subjected to harsh and humiliating procedures like kerosene baths, designed to remove the, quote, disease and filth, unquote, that they supposedly carried on their bodies. Uh, But the compromise was signed into law as Section 1325 of Title VIII in the U.S. Code in 1929. And that statute, along with its partner section, 1326, which covers illegal re-entry to the United States, is the basis for the criminal violations of this second group of inmates in private prisons. I'm sorry. Kerosene baths? Yeah, there was um, there was this common perception that Mexican immigrants not only carried um, internal disease, but that they were so dirty that they carried with them body lice, other lice, mites, um, and that they should be subjected to kerosene baths in order to kill those um, pests before they were allowed to enter the United States. And that is, of course, if they could afford the incredibly high fee and actually even find one of these official border entry points. Um, But I think there were something like, I want to say it was like four or five of them across the entire southern border at that time. Yeah. I mean, unless I'm very much mistaken, kerosene is a a corrosive chemical. It's caustic, right? Like that's not, uh, I mean, it's not even equivalent to splashing gasoline on yourself, which is also a caustic chemical, which can cause irritation and, and stuff. But like kerosene is more so than that. Yeah. That's, Wow. Yeah. I actually didn't know that before we did this. And I just had to talk. It, it just seems unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. Doing doing the research for this particular section, I was both compelled to like, oh, we need to spin this off, like the history of criminal Im- immigration as an actual episode. And then I was like, I don't know if I can handle it. So still torn on yeah. that one. Well, maybe sometime in the future, but holy Schneikies. I, I didn't realize it was, I, I didn't realize that was part of our history. I also, the, 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 the struggle seemed to be specifically about the U.S.-Mexico border, didn't it? Yeah. Like, it, they didn't mention the U.S.-Canada border. No, absolutely not. Um, and I think it was simply because um, at that point in time, there were very official, like people coming in from um, other parts of the world were going through kind of that official, what you consider the immigrant process, um, mm-hmm. the the checkpoints on the coast and, and being filtered in that way. Um, but the U.S.-Mexico border had always been basically open up until that point. People came and went as they pleased. Um, they were, Mexican workers were heavily involved in U.S. agriculture. Um, they were actually coveted workers um, because they were so reliable and consistent and willing to do the work well. Um, but there were a whole bunch of people, as there always have been throughout human history, who uh, decided that, you know, brown skin made them not worthy of anything that the United States could offer. So so basically nothing's changed since 1929. We rely uh, on the sweat of the brow of immigrant laborers to put food on our table and make it as difficult as possible for them to get here legally and as easy as possible for us to put them in prison and make money off of them that way. (sighs) Moving on. (laughs) We're not gonna get lost on that side tangent right now. All right. 
Um, so until the late 1980s, border crossing was almost always treated as a civil offense, which means it was punishable by deportation. But as the decade came to a close, that trend started to change. And by 1996, crossing the border after deportation was punishable by years of imprisonment. Anyone who had been previously convicted of crimes, most often drug offenses, were subject to enhanced sentences, which basically means a harsher punishment. Prosecutions under Section 1325 hovered between 3,000 and 6,000 per year between 1986 and 2003, with a very significant dip between 1993 and 1997 when prosecutions fell to less than 1,000 per year. But then, prosecutions began to spike in 2004 with a more than 400% increase. Yeah, that's four times as many between 2003 and 2004. And then they spiked again, more than tripling from 2007 to 2008. And man, if they'd even held at those levels, that would create a huge demand for increased prison capacity. And that's not even considering the prosecutions for re-entry. But after some rises and falls through the Obama administration, the numbers climbed again under Donald Trump, whose Department of Justice boasted in a press release about the record-setting numbers of Section 1325 and 1326 prosecutions in 2019. A combined total of over 106,000. Mm. <sighs> We're going from like three to 6,000 in, in 1986 to 2003, and then 106,000 in 2019. Like, I, my brain can't even really fathom that. It just no, can't. I and then I'm just thinking, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go for it. I'm thinking about how many, aside, aside from the obvious problems with putting people in prison for simply crossing the border, right? What, think about how many federal resources each of these trials are, are taking up. Uh, and to put 106,000 of them, you, you've got judges You've got lawyers, you've got literal law enforcement, the people who are in charge, Border Patrol. You've got the, the jails that have to hold these, uh, these immigrants. You've got um, the, the people who are contracted to feed them, people who are contracted to, to, they still, like, they have to have medical care when they're in, like, it's just a massive amount of resources to send these people to court and prison. Yes. Massive. Tying up probably, I don't know, but I would not be surprised if it were like hundreds of judges and and tens of thousands of people overall just dedicated to punishing people for crossing the border. Yeah, there there are like entire internal court systems inside of our federal court system that are devoted to this. Yeah, immigration courts. Um, and and <sighs> you know we do have to point out that like yes that is a that's a a huge increase in that period of time. And you, you know, if you go out there to do your own research and you do Google it, you're going to find a lot of people claiming that these huge increases, especially under uh, President Trump, were because of his favor for privatizing things. Um, there are a lot of people who would love to make the claim that he that he put pressure on on the court system to increase their prosecutions of this in order to uh, to feed Profits back to groups that lobbied heavily and contributed significantly to his campaign and the campaigns of people who support him. There are numbers out there all over the place. We are a research-based podcast, and so I will not make any claims about whether or not that's the case, but I will say that the numbers exist out there on the internet about how much these companies contributed to Donald Trump's campaign if you want to find them. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So I, a lot of people, I think, listening to this will say, well, if they don't want to go to prison, they shouldn't break the law, which I understand. Um, but the only thing that I'm going to remind people of is that laws 
are not always moral. Just because something is legal does not mean it is ethically the correct thing to do. And we have talked about that in a couple of different places on this podcast. Um, so just keep in mind that, yeah, they're breaking the law, but the, we as a nation, especially as a, a nation that is as prosperous and lucky as we are, should probably address these things more granularly. And instead of having a blanket crossing the border is bad and illegal and we will send you to jail for that, um, should take everything on a case-by-case basis. Would this maybe, would this require more resources to address? Maybe. Would it also lead to a more just and equitable treatment of human beings? Maybe. I would like to think so. Because the woman crossing the border with her children to escape, you know, a, a, a an ongoing drug war or um, just poverty. It, like, it doesn't have to be some drama. It could just be there's more opportunity in the United States. Like, that's not something that we should send people to jail for. Right. right? Yeah. I don't think so. Uh, like, yeah. If you're smuggling children as part of a, 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 a sex trafficking ring, okay, go to jail. I'm yeah. perfectly comfortable with that. If you're sending drugs, fine. Go to jail. If you're just coming here because it's literally impossible to find work for you where you're coming from and you can find work here and have a better life for your children. Like, why are you going, why are we sending people to prison for that? That's a, this, that's not even the point of this topic. We are supposed to be talking about <laughs> private prisons, not immigration, but it, oh, mm, right? Blown, mind gone out. Sorry. We are on a tangent, Tan- but that's what, we're, that's what we're good at. We're good at tangents. Apparently. Uh, To rein us back in, I am going to say, right, not only are we seeing this number of people who need to be incarcerated as a result of convictions for crossing the border in violation of sections 1325 and 1326, this private arrangement also applies to detainees. So the federal government relies heavily on privately run facilities for immigration detention. Those are the people who uh, have crossed the border and we've caught them and we need to do something with them, but they have not uh, gone through a trial or any sort of official process. So we have to put them somewhere. Um, And so that's what these immigration detention facilities are. And in the fiscal year 2017, nearly three quarters or 73% of all immigration detainees were held in private facilities. Which is, mm, I think, I'd have to look at this to be sure, but I think this is why we see things like the stories from uh, last year in 2019, where facilities would not allow people in, including congressmen, congresspeople, um, because they were privately run. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was no federal mechanism to to allow uh, people to come in um i know that's not the case for every detention facility obviously there are federally run detention facilities but that would explain why sometimes it seems like they they are keeping they're they're being obstinate it's Mm -hmm. because they're actually a, a private company protecting their their company's interests um Another little asterisk on all of this, one facet of the discussion on the privatization of prisons that often gets overlooked is that many prisoners who are not in fully private facilities are still impacted by the outsourcing of care and support services in their public prison facilities. So private companies uh, can be and are contracted to provide things like health care, food, transportation and financial services phone and communication services can be can be privatized in a public facility drug treatment could be a private provider in a public prison things like electronic monitoring and reentry programs once the inmates are released can all be privatized so a the the discussion about for-profit prisons and private prisons is bigger than a physical building to hold inmates because you can have a i mean you could theoretically have a public building to hold inmates that is completely run by private companies that staff and and actually operate everything i don't think that would 
I don't know if there's one that actually is operated that way, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a breakdown where a public facility has a majority of employees that are private contractors. Yeah. Okay. So, so for, for the yeah, rest so, of this, for the rest of this episode and then moving into next episode, we're going to get into the pros and cons, the costs and the benefits of the privatized prison system. But before we do that, we're going to acknowledge that these factors change sides of the page depending on who's making the list. So just imagine it this way. When, when we're extolling the virtues of the private prison system, we're making this pro-con list from the perspective of someone who supports the prisons. When we're railing against its failures, we're speaking from the perspective of a detractor. So before we can put a plus or a minus on, on each factor, or we can write it on the pro side of the page or the con side of the page, you have to understand that depending on who's looking at it, these factors could be good or they could be bad. Yeah. Okay. So the focus of this episode, primarily from here on out, we're going to talk about the pros, the benefits, the things that supporters say are good about this for-profit prison system. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it. No. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Okay. Fine. Fine. But I'm not going to be happy about it. <sighs> That's not how we're doing this. I told you at the top of last episode, I'm very biased. I know. But you have to remember that there are some folks who really, really believe in this system. And if we're going to okay. be unbiased or less biased, we have to present their case as thoroughly as we present the case against them. I am on board to do this with my utmost diligence and good faith. I promise. Okay. I, promise. I will start this part of the conversation give you a I chance to that. ease into it. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Proponents of for-profit prisons believe that they have a legitimate function in the overloaded American criminal justice system. They assert that these prisons are more cost-effective, that they promote innovation through market competition, and that they offer more flexibility for the systems that they serve and other things. So we're going to look to the research and we're going to see what the research says. What does it? What does the research say, Robin? What does all of the research that we found say about this? How, how do the, the mountains and tomes of literature that we found on this subject help us here, Robin? Okay, okay. So it turns out that the research doesn't actually say very much. Aside from some top-level talking points in op-eds, we really, really struggled to find data supporting the positive claims that people make about the private prison system. And we tried really hard. We used all the Google food that we know how to do. We were knee-deep in research databases. We couldn't find a lot. Yeah. But we're going to give you what we could put together. Yeah, I do want to, like stress this section this next part the last half of this episode actually took way longer to write than last week's episode in total and next week's episode yeah it was so hard to find this data um and i i don't know if that means that our googling is bad i don't think so and i'd like to also stress that we say googling but we actually rely on like ebscohost yeah. and gale academic research as our primary like that's where we go to first yeah um it's just google is a verb now yeah um but like i no matter what i typed in about private prisons you know private prison pros benefits of private prisons uh arguments for uh, uh for-profit prisons or private prisons um you know the effects e- e- like even more general like positive effects of the private prison industry right it just wasn't bringing back any studies so this might actually be this could mean two things this could mean that there is no data about that that like nobody has found any actual data backed support for these industries or perhaps more likely um that nobody has attempted to do these studies yeah and i think 
Um, so when we say that we struggled to write this, we did. It was very hard to find this. So we're, we, we're giving you everything that we've found. That doesn't necessarily mean that this stuff isn't right. It's just that it might not, like there might not be a lot of study on that side of things to support these claims right now, at least that we could find. Um, and ostensibly the resources that we default to are not biased by our search history and algorithms because that's right. the, that would that would affect how they work and that wouldn't be good. Yeah. So, One of these days we hopefully. should we should do a little insight into uh, each of us and how we go about finding this research. But even when, like, even when we went in and we looked at the specific talking points that we were able to find to try to find those data based comparisons between public and private prisons, that information just wasn't there after a certain point. So we did find yeah. a decent amount of information from the late 80s up through the early 2000s, but everything just kind of drops off at that point. Um, yeah. And the claim, like the stuff that we do find, the percentages, the, port, the proportions, often comes from people who have a an invested or a vested interest in private prisons being profitable mm -hmm. in private prisons functioning and working. So we have to take this data that we're, that we're presenting to you and that we're taking and understand that the sources for it um, need to be considered as we're presenting it to you. And this is a huge stinking caveat on all of this, which we normally don't have to present because yeah. normally we don't struggle to find information. But we wanted to make sure that our listeners that you knew that the, the, the quality of this data, um, it's, it's not up to the standards that we try to get for you, for you guys when we do this. Yeah. Um, and as usual, if you have a source of information that you feel like we missed, um, please share that with us because we do always try to do the most well-rounded and effective research that we possibly can. And if we're missing something, we, uh, we rely on you guys to tell us. So, All okay. Right. Point Get that out of the way. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so probably the biggest, loudest, most, um, widely, the spread talking point that I could find about private prisons and why they are beneficial is the claim that private prisons are more cost effective and save the taxpayers money. So one big, giant, huge talking point about private prisons for those who support private prisons is that they save taxpayers money because they are cost effective. One of the primary benefits of a private prison is the ability to cut costs and therefore reduce the cost of housing the inmate population. Basically, because they operate in pursuit of profit, they are incentivized to keep costs low, which should result in savings for the people footing the bill, aka the American public. And there are several studies from the 80s to the mid-2000s that seem to show cost savings for privately operated prisons. And some prisons did report 20 to 30% savings. Uh, Mark A. Levin, director of the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, said in 2006, savings in Texas from private prisons have been estimated at 10% to 14%. In the late 1990s, Louisiana built three prisons, two private and one public, and analysis of more than 200 variables from these three prisons, which are effectively comparable, showed that the private prisons were less expensive to operate while maintaining the same or better levels of quality and safety as the publicly operated prison. Um, again, a lot of these are going to be state-focused micro-level studies because so much of the, the private prison population is dispersed among the states that have these systems. Um, but some more micro-level studies conducted in 2002 compared similar variables between two or more prisons, at least one private and one public. Um, and those studies did show that 22 of 28 comparisons uh, between private and public facilities showed a significant savings over public facilities without impacting the quality of services. And then 
a 2003 study comparing 46 state prison systems to New Mexico's private system (laughs) uncovered several cost-saving factors, including unionized versus non-unionized workers. Without union workers, the study noted that per-prisoner costs were reduced by over $9,000 a year. But this is where we come in and say that there are also studies that show contradictory evidence. (laughs) Remember, this isn't uncommon in any kind of analysis. Results can be influenced by sample sizes and methodologies, the weight of one factor over another. And studies contradict each other all the time. And there were and are questions about the methodology and data collection and statistical analysis of some of these studies. Others were called into question because they were funded by organizations with a direct stake in the results. (laughs) So, you know, um, like cigarette companies trying to fund studies on why COVID patients suffer less if they smoke cigarettes, which is a thing that happened. Um, Yeah. Data on this topic is, is hard to come by, as we said, even for people whose job it is to find it. Right. But what that means for this conversation is that while we won't ignore or delegitimize evidence of cost savings, we can't say that this is a definitive, like this study got it right. There's just, again, more questions than we're used to seeing about the data. And private prisons may also be indirectly reducing the cost of incarceration by competing not just with each other, uh, but with public prisons, which is a factor that should be considered and is also one of the arguments for private prisons. It's actually argument number two that uh, private prisons promote (laughs) market competition. (laughs) Okay, so this is less a point specifically about prisons and more about capitalism and free markets. Competition leads to things like better pricing and better selection and better service. In this particular case, competition within the market means different corporations fighting to offer the best price to the government to house inmates, while providing the least hassle or best service to the customer, which, again, is also the government. This could mean something like more efficient record keeping, making management of inmates easy, or offering the easiest path to get a convict help to recover or address whatever drove them to crime in the first place. Competition is what is supposed to keep companies from racing to the absolute bottom. In the United States, one of the core focuses of our penal system is supposed to be treatment. Punishment alone is not the goal. So, theoretically, in a competitive environment where the government has to decide which company to contract with, the winning contract would be the one that provided the most efficient way to address the twin needs of isolating someone from society as punishment and also treating them. Having several options for private prisons not only forces the for-profit prisons to compete with each other to meet those needs, but it also forces the federal and state prison systems to work to meet those standards, or else they risk the ire of the electorate when they realize they're paying taxes for a substandard service. Right? That's the whole purpose of this is to make it better through competition. Um, um, I will say... Uh while these were the claims that I could find that were being made about why flexibility or sorry, why market competition is good for these prisons, I literally found zero studies, zero studies supporting these claims. So this is, this is a theoretical argument. I can see the logic behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems reasoned, but whether or not it is, it is true in practice, um, Unless somebody can point me to one, I found no studies supporting these claims. Right. Um, But again, I totally understand why this would work. Yeah, it makes logical sense. Yeah. Uh, We see it in, I mean, we do see market competition working in other industries. Like we know that it does in certain circumstances, um, in the right industries, it does provide a better solution to the the customers it's just i'm not sure if that is specifically true about private prisons so if somebody can find support for that be eternally grateful uh for for the uh for the data exactly all right so the next point is that these private prison systems and and the functions that they offer uh, give more opportunities for flexibility in how how the prison system can operate. Right. And that's like, 
because they're flexible, they can therefore be more efficient, which means they keep costs down. So this kind of goes hand in hand with that, with that uh, market competition thing. Um, so because private prisons don't suffer from the same uh, bureaucratic problems <laughs> as government organizations, they are more capable of adapting to changes in the environment. Again, this is less of a feature of a private prison specifically, so much as an age-old argument about the benefits of private uh, businesses in general. And this isn't a claim totally without merit. I did find data to suggest that private organizations are more flexible. Um, the important caveat on this is that it wasn't specifically about prisons, uh, private prisons versus public prisons, but... Um, the study, there was a study out of the University of uh, Ljubljana that showed that private organizations enabled internal numerical, functional, and locational flexibility more often than public options. So that's, like, those are abstract words to describe things like the ability to change practices, the ability for um, people to move within the organization, um, the ability to change budgets and allotments of funding and where somebody could physically do their job, that sort of thing. Um, and yes, I included this study from Slovenia simply because I know how to pronounce the name of the university <laughs> and I wanted to flex that I have been practicing my Serbo-Croatian. Um, so yeah, University of Ljubljana. Ljubljana. It's hard because it's L-J-U-B-L-J-A-N-A. Ljubljana. That's a lot of consonants. is the L-J sound. Um, don't have a lot of that in American English. L-J. L-Y-ish sound. So, uh, yeah, if anybody's listening from the former Yugoslavia, Dobrojutro, Dobrodan, ili Dobroveče. Now, I just got to interject to the about this argument because i'm i am a government contractor i have been a government contractor for years now and the argument let's just say that it, it um, i have doubts <laughs> these companies are contracted to work for the government the government the og undefeated champions of bureaucracy companies that are contracted to work for the government are usually always held to the same standards as the public institutions themselves are. So if anything, contracting to the government reduces flexibility because the private company has to work with the government to change every little thing. Do you know how hard it is to get overtime approved? Okay, there are like at least three different parties that have to sign up on every hour of overtime that I that I work or ask to work, right? And at least I, I can think of two records off the top of my head that are made of to record that overtime work. It's just a nightmare. So yeah, yeah, this argument about flexibility might be proffered and it might be true in certain industries. I just don't know if it's true when the industry is a contractor to the government vice a an industry that doesn't contract to the government but fulfills a similar need to the government, which would be something like, um, uh, I guess, like an emergency services NGO, um, like Red Cross, vice FEMA, right? Like one of them is government operated. Red Cross is not government operated. So I could see, I'm pretty sure they're not government operated. They just work alongside the government. Um, I could see like the Red Cross being more flexible in the things that they can do and how they do them right. um, versus somebody who contracts to the government to do emergency services for FEMA, who basically has to act like they're FEMA at all times. It's just uh, a, 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 a distinction that needs to be recognized as right. somebody who is on the inside and sees it every day. Um, little, little side eye there. Yeah. And, and the chances of, of us finding actual data of anyone having actual data about whether or not these private private prison companies can really be more flexible. Um, well, there's just no chance. Right? That's not data that we're going to find. 
because nobody's keeping records on like, hey, we were able to pivot this way or we were able to do that because we're a private company, whereas the the public prisons couldn't do that. So again, logical argument. It makes sense, but that's just not one that we're going to get data to support. Yeah. Um, the final like tier, the final structure argument um, for... Sorry, that made no sense. The final pillar. There we go. That's the word that I'm looking for. The final pillar of the argument for uh, for-profit prisons um, are that this this ability to be more flexible uh, and this combined with this the competition within the market and the cost savings, it really all comes together to mean that there are improved conditions and access to better programs, which means better outcomes for the inmates. Right. Proponents of for-profit prison systems also suggest that the quality of life is actually better for the prisoners with safer and more secure environments and better programs to address educational needs, vocational training, and substance abuse. Um, Mark Levin, again, touted how these facilities offer a better environment to offenders, giving them better access to important resources. He says that private facilities such as those run by Corrections Corporation of America uh, often provide better access to programs like drug treatment and job training. And those programs have also been demonstrated to reduce recidivism. Um, and, you know, indeed, analyses from the same time frames as those, those cost studies we mentioned indicated that, yeah, incidents of violence against other inmates and against prison staff were lower in those private prisons at that time. Uh, for example, the prisons that Louisiana built in the late 1990s, the public and private prisons, um, some folks studied the data there on the violent incidents. In 1998, a study showed that the public prison experienced twice as many critical incidents as the private prisons did. Uh, and even further, the public prison was found to have statistically the highest number of monthly inmate assaults on staff, which resulted in serious injury. Um, but the problem is that since that time frame, there has been very little data that's been released or studied that compares these violent occurrences in public versus private prisons. A small spoiler for next week's episode, where we talk about the problems with the private prison system. One study that was released by the Department of Justice in 2001 indicated that the rates of inmate-on-inmate -inmate violence were actually 38% higher in private prisons than in public prisons. It's complicated, y'all. Yeah, right. As with all things, the data is evolving. That's how science works. Um, and that is because we live, we live in a society. Um, we, our culture changes over time, which means that our social interactions change over time, which means that something that is true of a, of, of a group of people in 2000 and uh, in in 1998 might not be the same in 2006 might not be the same in 2021 so when we gotta again we need newer data for this stuff so we can truly analyze it because if we're making these decisions based on old data it might might not actually be accurate anymore right so that said what do we know about inmate care and rehabilitation programs, which is another one of these claims? Better outcomes, right? Better care. Um, supporters of the private prison system often point to programs like the Geo Group's Continuum of Care Advanced Rehabilitation Program as evidence that the privatized system is better able to resource inmates in ways that prepare them for life outside of the prison, which is the ultimate goal. Um, again, if, if we can find a way to get these resources to prisoners, I don't care if it's public or private or aliens from Mars doing it, like I am for that system. So according to the company's annual report, the Geo Continuum of Care program was implement, implemented in 2020 at 19 Geo facilities, including 16 state correctional facilities, one county facility, one federal Bureau of Prisons facility, and one international facility. Yeah, international. Whole other topic right now. 20,294 inmates participated in the program and completed more than 2.5 million hours in programs including vocational training, substance abuse rehabilitation, and academic advancement. 
1,239 inmates earned high school equivalencies, 7,649 completed vocational programs, and 8,767 completed substance abuse programs. One former inmate, Hector M., said, This program has helped me with creating a better future for myself. I am in the process of getting promoted to assistant manager, and I am blessed to have a job and good health. I don't think I would have gotten this far without the assistance from this program. Thank you. And GeoGroup also offers post-release and transition programs that involve a 90-day pre-release plan created by inmates and specially trained staff together, um, and then offer support after release through case management and transitional housing and clothing and food vouchers, transportation assistance, vocational training and job placement, substance abuse and mental health treatment, family reunification opportunities, and educational classes. These are all fantastic things. Like, it, this part, this section in and of itself in this, in this session actually gets me really excited for the potential. I like seeing things like they have plans and that they are trying to do this and they are providing these things or they plan to provide these things. But we don't know how effective they are because there's no data. Right. We can't, we can't find a study on it, guys. So this sounds good, but you have to understand that it's coming from the private prison itself telling yeah. us that this is what they're doing. So, you know, we, we don't know how, how effective these steps are. And I really hope from the bottom of my heart that these are super, super, super effective. Yeah, like, no, like I want this program to be outrageously effective and as as shiny as it looks in their annual report. Like I, I want that with yeah. every fiber of my being. Um, but in all fairness, an archived page from March of 2017 on the DOJ website does outline similar steps in much less flashy language and without, you know, stylized icons and pretty fonts um, that were being taken by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, the thing is, it's the government and there were no numbers attached to that outline that we can compare anything to as of yet. Uh, the government doesn't really like to tell us all the details and the data about the things that they do. Um, they're not going to come up with a, a pretty well-designed report to release to their shareholders at the end of every year that outlines all the great things that they did because basically we have to pay them taxes no matter what they say. So, You know what? I'm going to demand my taxes go to pretty infographics yeah. and shareholder informational meetings. Every right. Year. Like as I sign that little check, I just want to be like, hey, Use this for a graphic designer. Yeah, put it put it on the memo line for infographics. Thank you. There's um, probably some sort of law that says if you write it in the memo line, the government has to use it for that. Kind of like when you yeah, donate totally. to a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, that uh, <laughs> that definitely makes sense. I definitely believe it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so like we've definitely caveated a lot of this stuff as we've gone through, which might not come off as uh, as unbiased or as in strong support as we said we were going to try to be. But we also didn't want to make any false claims that we couldn't support. So we're trying to to walk that mm -hmm. fine line of here is what the arguments are and here is what we can tell you is supported. And unfortunately, we like for what we like to do here, we just, this one was very difficult, guys. Um, so I, and when I consider these things personally i do take these arguments into consideration but without knowing the practical difference between if a private prison's uh, path to pursue these treatments and just so many p's in this episode so I love many it. p's um without seeing if their path is actually more efficient or more effective or just better than what the government does then it's I don't know if this is superior. Right. And I don't know if it's if it's worth the money that we do. And when we get into some of the conversation next week, you'll see why I'm very, very hesitant to be excited about things like private prisons um, beyond the ethical considerations of profiting off of keeping people in prison. And there's another point that needs to be made 
that is sort of an underlying um, assumption within all of these discussions, and that is that performing at the level of the federal system is desirable. But the reality of the situation is that our federal system, our prison methodology within the United States in general is not super effective. It's not great. We have high rates of recidivism, no matter if it is in a federal jail or a state jail or a private jail. We have a massive prison population, largest in the world. When we say, you know, this performs as well as or worse than the federal government, that's not really a, a like a gold star. Right. Know? That's not like a high bar to leap over. <laughs> yeah, it's it is just, um, well, at least it's not worse. You know, that's that's about as as good as you can take away from that. That is a whole other episode, a whole other podcast. But the effectiveness, the effectiveness of the current prison methodology is something that should be considered when we're talking about these things at all. Yes. Yeah. And and we didn't, maybe it was a miss on our part to not introduce some of that baseline um, from, from the actual federal prison system um, as like a measuring stick. But I feel like it's, it's pretty well known that the United States federal prison system and the even state prison systems are... Um, they're not exactly gold standard systems. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever known somebody or, or been into either of those systems yourself, you, it's, it's rough. Yeah. It's hard. Even, even with people who are invested in like making inmate uh, transition from prison to public effective and better. And there are many, many people, many social workers, many, uh, um, parole officers who are so invested in their their cases um, that we as a society do owe a considerable you know debt of gratitude too because they work very hard I mean even with people pulling for you as you're transitioning out it is so hard to get back into society so hard yeah so there's a broader conversation that we might have an episode on later about uh, you know the effective prison, effective rehabilitation, effective treatment programs, what they look like, you know, and the, and the ideas behind them. Um, because it is pretty interesting when you get into the data to see, you know, what is working better and where it's working and why it's working. So just, I don't know, teasing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned for more prison discussion. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> I mean, I think we have said pretty much all there is to say about the arguments in favor of for-profit prisons and um, and the problems. At with- least for th- at least for an hour-long episode. Yeah. At least for an hour-long episode. <laughs> and, and and the struggles that we had finding information, data, data, not just information, because you know everything out there is information, but actual real research data that can tell us how how these systems are are performing compared to the federal system and um, and even just in general for for prisoners on the whole. Um, so I am looking forward to hopefully hearing some feedback from anybody who does have uh, strong thoughts and opinions on this. I know this is one topic that a lot of people feel very strongly about either on one way, one side or the other. Um, and so we would absolutely we would love to hear your strong opinion. And do you know mm-hmm. where you might be able to share that strong opinion with us? Where can they share that strong opinion with us? They could share it with us on social media. We're on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter as Fireside Breakdowns. And we would love to hear from you there. We're doing a much better job of keeping up our social accounts. So if you'd like to see what a much better job looks like, you should come visit us there. People could also tell us how they feel in a strongly worded email, perhaps with links to citations and sources that we did not consider. And they could email us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Mm. We would welcome mm-hmm. that email as well. We'll even reply to you. We will. It's not going to go off into the void. Because there's only two of us. Exactly. 
And then um, if yeah. if someone would would feel so compelled as to leave us a review and tell us how maybe this episode or another episode like changed your life, made you think about the world differently, you know, just basically changed who you are as a human being. Or even yeah. if you just really liked a rant or we said something really funny or if you would like to comment on the fantastic editing from last week's episode just flawless give that editor a raise yes there will be a link in the show description to a cool app called rate my podcast which makes it very easy for you to leave us a review on whichever platform you listen on should it allow reviews yes please do and now can you tell us some good news i sure can I sure, sure can. Um, so keeping it on the uh, the theme for the episode, uh, we're going to talk about prison populations. And overall, the prison population in the United States is on a downward trend. According to the Vera Institute of Justice, the number of people incarcerated in state and federal prisons and local jails in the United States dropped from around 2.1 million in 2019 to 1.8 million by mid-2020. Nice. That is a 14% decrease. The decline held through the fall, um, and this represents a 21% decline from a peak of 2.3 million people in prison and jail in 2008. Uh, This was accompanied by an increase in parity between black and white incarceration rates. Nice. Um, So the the Bureau of Justice Statistics report on the 2018 jail population found that the national black jail incarceration rate was 3.2 times the white jail incarceration rate, which again would be no surprise to anybody who has been listening. Right. Um, However, that is down from 4.9 times in 2008. Nice. That's huge. Yeah, Ed, that is that is good. The same report also found out that Latinx incarceration had declined significantly over the last decade. Although exact numbers couldn't be arrived at due to difficulties in reporting that particular set of information, like what, what does Latinx mean? <laughs> um, which is, yeah, let's just say that data pool is muddled. Um, so this was caused, this downturn in population was caused by a confluence of events more than any like notable reduction in crime rates in the U.S. Although, I will say, crime rates are dropping. Yes, dropping. That is according to both the FBI and the Bureau of Justice Statistics, okay? So this may come as a shock to some people who only get their news from certain sources <laughs> or politicians. But the United States is actually, if you look at the crime rate, safer than it was, okay? It is getting better, not worse. Cannot stress that enough. Um, however, the reduction in prison population was caused by things like the, the global pan- uh, pandemic, right? and an increased call for racial justice via movements like Black Lives Matter. Um, A lot of inmates were released early or uh, put out on parole because uh, prison populations were particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus because they're kept in such tight quarters and it's just there's so many of them in an enclosed space. Um, I have a personal story about how uh, prisons were handling the coronavirus last year and i can tell you firsthand that it was atrocious so i know a lot of people were upset to hear that inmates were being released because of the pandemic Um, but i think if you dig into the data you find the kind of inmate that was released um and like the length of time that their sentence was cut short and then what they had to do to be released early right like the 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 things the loops that they have to jump through post release while they're on parole um you probably wouldn't find it as scary yeah. of a prospect as you think it is cuz a lot of, i think a lot of people were imagining things like murderers and rapists oh and yeah these horrible people just like the da- the jail cells are open and out they go and that's that's not it's reality not how it works guys yeah well that is good news 
That was it exciting was to hear a lot of that. And hopefully um, by the time next year rolls around, we'll start to see those numbers decrease even more significantly. Yeah, it has been. It looks like it has been a long term trend since 2008. So over a decade now of, of a general decline in the population, which is good. Yes. Very, very good. Awesome. You want to take us out of here this week, Robin? Awesome. Okay, I can do that. It's not intimidating at it. all. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it, it, I love that the sign-off is so stressful for it is, you because you can talk for like an hour about complicated data with nuance and why, you know, we have to think about this. But as soon as it's time to say goodbye, you're like... <sighs> Stressing out. You know what it is, actually? It's that it's consistent every time. Like when you do it, it's the same sign-off every time and it's not written down. Oh, yeah. And so like in my head, I'm like, shit, I don't remember what he said. I literally don't remember. Do you, need a, do you need me to give you a prompt? I think I can make it work. I believe in you. Okay. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll be back with you next week to talk about even heavier the problems with the private prison system. But until that time, take care of each other. Nailed it.